We're about helping people find and follow Jesus. That's the reason Crosspoint Baptist exists, to uh, preach the gospel, to share the good news with those who don't know him and disciple those who do. So today we're going to continue in a series that we started a few weeks ago. And I'm calling this series, I Am Coming Soon, the book of Revelation. And so through the coming weeks, you'll understand why I'm calling it that, because it's all about Jesus, the great I Am, and how he is coming soon. So if you brought your Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 1. We will look all the way from verse 9 all the way through verse 20, a sermon I'm calling a high view of Christ. Today's message, it really introduces the next seven messages to come. In the seven weeks we're, we're going to, in the seven, next seven weeks, Jesus is going to address seven different churches. And I want you to know these are real historical churches that existed in Asia Minor, Asia Minor in the first century. And some people say these are metaphorical churches. They say that these churches didn't really exist. But we're going to see that Jesus calls them by name. He names names. And these were real cities with real churches in Asia Minor. So these were churches that really existed. They had real pastors. In the congregations, they came together for the worship and the studying of God's word, just like we do today. And Jesus had something to say to these churches. And by Jesus saying something to these churches, by extension, he's saying something to us. So each week, we're going to look at a different church. We're going to ask ourselves, do we resemble this church? Or do we resemble that church? Or maybe there's bits and pieces from different churches that, that we look like. And see, as we read the scripture, we're going to find out that very clearly, these, some of these churches got some things right. And some churches got some things terribly wrong. And what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're doing the right things right. And we need to make sure that we're never doing the wrong things at all. And so today's message is an introduction of this next seven messages that we're going to go look at as we cover Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. The whole book, this whole letter that we'll be studying is the Apostle John writing down uh, as what he's seeing in this vision as he's exiled on the island of Patmos. In John's letter, it's a vision, it's a revelation, it's an unveiling of how all of human history will come to its final and ultimate conclusion. Revelation might be the most difficult book in the entire Bible to understand, definitely in the New Testament. And I say this because the Apostle John, he's putting down onto paper some things that he's seen, and what he's seen is, it's unbelievable. Let me ask you, have you ever had a dream that was quite unbelievable? And then maybe you tried to explain it to somebody else, you came and you tried to explain what you were, what happened during your dream. Well, that's what John is trying to do. I mean, imagine if I had to try to describe to my great-grandparents virtual reality headsets. And I would tell my great-grandparents, I'd say, well, it's like TVs that are in a pair of glasses, and you put them on your face, and you see some things that aren't really there. And then you can turn around, and you can do some things in virtuality that are not really happening in reality. And I'm sure if I told my great-grandparents, they'd ask me if I've been drinking. That's what we're studying here, okay? Some of the things that, that, that John is talking about are literal, some things are spiritual. Some things are metaphorical because it represents something else. And so this book is tough to wrap your mind around. But not all of it. There are some things that John's going to tell us are very easy to understand. And again, some things are not. But what we should not do is just chunk this whole book out the window because there's some things we don't understand. This is what I believe we should do. Let's read it. Let's study it. 
Let's understand the things that are easy to understand, and then let's apply those things that are easy to understand to our life. And the things that are tough, let's discuss. And then let's do our best to come to a conclusion about what's being said. And there's several different opinions about what's being said. Let's do our best to consider them all. And then let's do our best to, to come to a conclusion what we think is the best or most logical possible meaning of what's being said. But let's not do what most people do, is just chunk the whole book of, of Revelation out the window. They, they essentially throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's some things they don't understand. One thing that will help us understand what's being said in this book is to understand it is apocalyptic in nature. It is prophetic in nature. It is pointing to things that is coming in the future. It's describing in very vivid word picture and symbols things that are going to happen. And the, the reason behind that is to make an impression upon us. But it's easy to get swallowed up in all the details, but let's not allow that to happen. This book is the only book in our New Testament with a promise that is attached to reading it. So read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. It said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This book tells us if we read this, if we hear this, if we keep this and observe, fully pay pay attention to what's being said in this book, there's a blessing that comes with it. And the vision that, that we're being read, that we're reading about, that John is writing down for us, it, it's, it all happens some, when John gets his vision somewhere between 90 to 96 AD. And John is writing this down on the small island of Patmos. What do we know about this book's author? Well, we do know that John, this is the Apostle John, who, who wrote the Gospel of John. He was one of the original 12 disciples. He had a father by the name of Zebedee. He had a mom by the name of Salome. And he has uh, at least one brother who is also an apostle and one of the 12 disciples who is by the name of James. And John might have been Jesus' cousin of some sort because uh, Mary and Salome, they're either sisters, cousins, second cousins. We're not exactly sure. But the, the scriptures tells us they're related. So that means Jesus and John were related somehow also. John was a fisherman in Galilee, and he's one in the inner circle of Jesus. He's one of his very close friends because he's always named as Peter, James, and John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what John says about himself when he writes his his gospel message. John wasn't trying to say that he's more loved than the other apostles. He's just really not even trying to name himself at all. So really, it's a mark of humility. John was one of the pillars of the early church. And he wrote five books that are found in our New Testament. There's Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation that we're studying today. He was at one time the church at the, at the, uh, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Now we're going to read about what happened to John's church next week. And, and he's now at this moment, he's a prisoner of the island of Patmos. And he's an old man. This is the way that some very powerful men tried to silence John. And the, the point of the book of Revelation, the whole, point, the whole point, what it's trying to say is that Jesus is coming back. The word revelation, it is the Greek word apocalypse. It literally means an unveiling. John wants us to know that there's some things that have been veiled in the past that are going to be unveiled by this vision he's giving. The entire book of Revelation is letting us peek under the sheet, so to speak, of how it's all going to go down in the end. The Bible, it begins with God. 
In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But please notice that, that it doesn't give in a defense for God. It just states the fact, God, period, and that's it. And then this, the, the Bible ends with a statement about God. In Revelation 1.1, it says, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, we're going to read this today. This, John receives this vision of God as the curtains are pulled back. And, and John gets to gaze in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. The revelation, the, the unveiling is telling us about this future events. But ultimately, it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the main character, the central figure. Uh, through, he is the, the theme throughout the book of Revelation. Really, that's true for the entire Bible. And that might be um, hard to understand, but it's very clearly seen in the book of Revelation. If you don't see that Jesus is the central theme to the book of Revelation, then I would say you're trying not to see it. Chapter 1, John is, sees this grand vision of Jesus. God is revealing himself to, uh, to us, and he's showing us what is, he's like. So I want you to know one thing, is that Christianity, Christianity is about revelation. It's not about speculation. Because that's what other faiths do. They, they speculate, they, they wonder, they ask questions like, well, is there a God? D- does he love me? Is there a way for for me to know him? How is there a way for my sins to be forgiven? How do I get to God? What can I do to make God come to me? That's what other faiths do. That's speculation. But we don't speculate because everything that we need to know in life is found in this book. It's called the Bible. God revealed himself to us not out of obligation, but out of great love. Listen to what John says to his audience in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And starting in verse 11, John is going to be naming names. Actually, Jesus is naming names. He's going to get to the details in chapters 2 and 3 of this book. But Jesus begins to name names. He's going to call out the church at Ephesus. They're the church that lost their first love. He's going to call out the church in Smyrna. Uh, this is, Jesus had nothing bad to say about them, but they were the persecuted church. And then the church in Pergama, they were the compromising church. There's a church in Thyatira. They're the church with the false doctrine. They're the church in Sardis. They, they're a dead church. How would you feel if Jesus called us the dead church? There's the church in Philadelphia. Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. In fact, they were the very best church. And then there's Laodicea. They were the cult church or the worst church. You know, there's been times in my preaching where people have, have said, hey, you really shouldn't call out people. You shouldn't name names. Well, this is what I'll say about that. Jesus did it. Good enough for Jesus, and then it should be good enough for me, right? When, when I was really little, my grandmother would pose a question to me. And, and no matter how I answer that question, if I answer that question honestly, I was going to hurt her feelings. She, so you know what I did? I lied. And she'd ask me that question all the time, so I repeatedly lied to my grandma. Well, this is what we're going to do in the coming weeks. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say when he's naming names. And then we're going to ask ourselves a tough question. The tough question is this, which one are we? Which church do we look like the most? Because I'm sure as we sit here, every single one of us want to say, oh, we're definitely Philadelphia. We're the loving church. No one wants to admit they're Laodicea. But what we're not going to do is what I did when I was a kid. And we're not going to lie. We're going to give ourselves the honest answer. 
Which one of these churches, if not several of these churches, do we look like? And remember, these are real historical churches that existed in the first century throughout Western Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. The climate of the church during that time was one of persecution. Believers were facing terrible persecution, even death during the first century. Stuff that we really can't imagine in this country. I mean, believers were impaled on poles for their faith in Jesus Christ. Believers were dipped in pitch, which is essentially like tar, and then lit a fire. They were alive candles, human candles. That's what happened to them for their faith in Christ. Believers were thrown to lions, and, and onlookers would look as they were ripped to shreds. There were massive amounts of Christians that were crucified along the roads all at one time. Rome was essentially saying, don't mess with Rome. All for people's faith in Christ. People, uh, followers of Christ had holes drilled in their head and then molten metal poured in the holes because they were followers of Jesus Christ. We can't even imagine what they were facing 2,000 years ago. And this all happened to believers. But yet, as we read the book of Revelation, one thing that we're going to see over and over and over again is all about the sovereignty of God. So the question we ask is, how can God be sovereign and yet his followers be persecuted in horrible ways? The answer is, in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, there'll be no more tears. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more persecution in the end. You see, the purpose for the book of Revelation is to give believers hope and to give believers assurance despite the fact that they're suffering. The book of Revelation is so that we will fix our gaze upon Christ in the second coming and not in this fallen, broken world. Read Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. The word of God says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I heard a story of a seasick passenger. There was a ship that was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, and this passenger he's turned seven shades of green, and he's at the, the rail of the ship, just emptying the contents of his stomach to the point there's nothing left. And a steward came by and trying to cheer him up, he said, don't worry, no one's ever died of seasickness before. And the man said, don't tell me that, the hope of dying is the only thing's keeping me alive. You see, it's the hope of the return of Jesus Christ that should keep us alive, even during the times of our greatest suffering. Read Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. The word of God says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, we are to persevere through our suffering. I mean, think about this. John, he's a pillar of the church. He has all the clout and influence. He carries the most weight and spiritual authority at this moment. He's one of the original 12 apostles. He's an eyewitness to the resurrection, the crucifixion. He writes five books of the Bibles. And what does he call himself? He calls himself brother. He says, your brother and partner in the tribulation. If you were in John's sandals, would you call yourself something else? I bet we would if we're being honest. It was the night before Jesus' betrayal and resurrection that Jesus had some word to comfort his, his, uh, his followers in their time of greatest need. 
And then here in Revelation chapter 1, John quotes what Jesus said that night. Read in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus essentially says, in me, peace. In the world, tribulation. That's how it works. You need to know that this earthly life, it's, this, it's a temporal life. And it's going to be filled with tribulation. This life is going to be filled with suffering. Our lives are filled with trials. They're filled with tragedies. They're filled with suffering. It's filled with setbacks and pain and persecution. That's what happens to the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. At this moment, as we're reading Revelation 1, John, he's experienced tribulation. John is suffering. And he's suffering in every imaginable way. Physically, John uh, is told us, church history tells us that John was attempted, they attempted to boil him alive for his faith in Christ. But he wouldn't die. Financially, John was stripped of his home and all of his possessions. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. Emotionally, he's isolated from society. He's removed from those that he loved, even his church that he was the pastor of. Spiritually, at this moment, John couldn't use the gifts that he was given uh, as for building up the church, for pastoring the flock. The apostle John is suffering in every possible conceivable way. Because John's suffering, it just doesn't jive with the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it uh, the gospel that's preached so so. So, so, so often today. Because think about it. If John could speak prosperity in his life, why didn't he just claim a blessing? Claim a blessing, get off the island of Patmos, and, and then just live in, in luxury. Why didn't he do that? So many preachers preach this, come to Jesus, and Jesus is going to take all your problems away, and your earthly life is just going to be heavenly. It was a popular message, but the problem is it's not the gospel. Our life as followers of Jesus Christ, it is not tribulation-free. It is tribulation-proof, but definitely not tribulation-free. You see, we can endure any tribulation, any suffering, any trial, any tragedy, any opposition that comes our way through our relationship with Jesus. The key is found in verse 9. Verse 9 says, the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The word patient endurance... It means perseverance. Perseverance means to stand firm any pressure. Simply put, it means to trust God no matter what you're going through. Perseverance might be a foreign concept to many of us today. Because think about it. When persecution comes our way, we tend to shrink back. We just shrink back. We retreat. We lose all hope. Someone gives us the slightest bit of grief for our faith in Christ, and we tuck tail and we run the other way. Maybe somebody slanders us, maybe lies about us, hates us because we love Jesus. Typically, we turn the other way. Sadly, often in our Christian life, we act more like Peter, and we turn and run, and we don't act like John, who was there at the cross during Jesus' greatest time of suffering. There was a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. He said this. He said, quote, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Isn't that true? I can only look back at my life and understand why I went through what I went through. But yet I still have to live this life forward. It's a life of faith. 
You know, we come to church here and we hear a message about suffering, this message about persecution, and it's great in theory, but it has to be lived out practically when we leave this place. Perseverance in Jesus means to stand firm under pressure. And we can do this because Jesus is our model. He's our example of what it looks like to stand firm under pressure. So when we experience tribulation, when we experience trials, you're going through something you don't like, know that Jesus did it first. And what we're going through today is preparing us for tomorrow. Read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The word of God says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated the right hand of the throne of God. You see, when we become believers, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit and the third member of the Trinity sets up residency in our hearts. And so what gets us through this is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that helps us persevere through our suffering. The text is essentially saying, let me paraphrase this, we don't persevere for Jesus We persevere in, like, with, by the Holy Spirit. That's what that's telling us. When the Apostle John is writing this thing, he's probably 90 to 100 years old. He's an old man, and yet he's suffering. And at the same time, he's persevering. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, which is, it's located in the Aegean Sea. Patmos is an island. It's 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. It's very rugged, rocky country. And on the top of of Patmos, there's a a cave. And it's very likely this, that's the very location where John is, is pinning this letter. The equivalent of Patmos today would be Alcatraz. That's where John's at. But the question is, why is John exiled to Patmos? John tells us. We don't have to wonder about this. John says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is persecuted for his preaching and teaching about Jesus. John is banished to the island of Patmos because he won't shut up about Jesus. He's suffering and John is hurting. And at this moment, he's all alone. Here's the application for you and me. If we are living the life that God gives us for Jesus, then expect persecution. It's coming our way. If it happened to John, the beloved, then what makes us think it's not going to happen to us? So when, not if, but when we, we face hatred and slander and maybe somebody's talking bad about us because you love Jesus, that's normal. It's not easy, but it's normal and it's part of the Christian life. And if you're not experiencing any of that, then you have to ask yourself, am I really living the Christian life that God gave me? Is that now, at this moment, God gives John this vision. He says, write this down. And this vision to encourage believers during times of great persecution so that they'll persevere. We can persevere during our greatest times of trial because Jesus is with us. Read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. The word of God says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergama and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two. We are to worship Jesus while we suffer. So it's at this moment, John, he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And notice he's worshiping. He says, I was, on the, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. By the way, this is the only reference to the Lord's day in the New Testament. He's referring to Sunday. It's the first day of the week. God's people, the, the Jewish people, they celebrated and observed the, the Sabbath on, on a Saturday. But it got changed to Sunday. Why? Because the resurrection changed everything. Believers went from worship on Saturday, the set aside for a day of worship, to worship on Sunday, the first day, because of the resurrection. And, and, and think about John's situation. He's exiled. We don't know how long. Was he here a month, 10 years? We don't know. He's away from the church. He's away from the believers. He's away from everybody who loves him. And what does he do? He worships Jesus. When we suffer... When, we're, when we face persecution, do we worship? Sadly, often we don't. Often what we do when we suffer, when suffering comes into our life, what we tend to do is we question God. But I'd say don't question God, instead worship God. You see, sometimes suffering comes into our lives and it causes us to question God. When I say question, I mean sometimes we wonder if God really loves us. Or, or maybe if it doesn't cause you to wonder if God loves you, maybe it causes you to, uh, to envy somebody else. You, you, you envy what they had, their career, their spouse, their children, their money, their stuff, their situation. I wish I had it like they had it, right? Or maybe it causes you to say, oh, my life is so hard. You become all self-consumed. It's all about me and what I'm going through. And then what that causes you to do, that causes you to run to a functional savior. Rather than going to Jesus, what we do is we run to that functional savior. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it is. It's something other than Jesus that will never fill you. God might seem distant to us during our greatest time of suffering, but what did John do? He worshiped Jesus. And then what happened? John worshiped Jesus. You notice what happened? Jesus showed up. John hears this loud voice. It's like a trumpet. Jesus is speaking. He says, write what you see in a book. And then send this book to the seven churches in in Asia. By the way, this is the only letter, our only book in the New Testament written directly from Jesus to any of the churches. And before we get to what Jesus said, let me ask you a question. If Jesus wrote Crosspoint Baptist Church a letter, what would he say? Maybe this is time you need to pull out a pen and write down. This is what I think Jesus would say to us. And this is what I'm doing the coming weeks. I'm going to ask that question every single week. And let's see if our answer doesn't change as we go. But listen to what happens. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man. Clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs in his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and the voice like, a ro- like the roaring of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three. In order to persevere and worship, you need to see Jesus as Jesus really is. So think about this. John, he hears this voice, someone speaking. I think John hears something that sounded like Niagara Falls. I want to say Shell Falls because that's familiar to us here, but I don't think that falls is big enough for the thunderous rushing waters that John heard. And John immediately sees seven golden lampstands. When we get to verse 20, he's going to tell us that the seven golden lampstand represents the seven churches. So we don't have to debate what the seven golden lampstands are. But here's the question. Why does John call the churches a lampstand? That's because ancient uh, lampstands, they held candles. And they held, they held the candles, the shine forest light. And so the seven churches are the seven lampstand. Question. What is the purpose of the church? The answer is to shine light. That's the job of the church. What's the job of Cross Point Baptist Church? Is to shine light, is to share the gospel, is to shine the, the light of Christ into a dark, dark world. The job of the church is not to have a great fellowship. That's not the the job of the church. If you want to have a great fellowship, go to the country club, buy a membership, have some great prime rib, and have a great time. That's not the job of the church. The purpose of the church is to shine light. And if we aren't shining light, then what are we even doing? Jesus is the light of the world. And this world is filled with darkness and sin and death and ugliness. The church is called to shine the light of Jesus Christ in a dark world. Cross Point Baptist Church is a lampstand. There's lots of lampstand, but it's Cross Point shining the light that God gives us. The text says, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. Where's Jesus? He's in the midst of the church. He's in the middle of the church, and he loves the church. He's, he died for the church. And John calls him one like the son of man. Did you know Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title in the Gospels for himself? He calls himself the Son of Man far more than any other title, even the Son of God. This is more of a title than just simply about his humanity. It's found in the Old Testament, the, 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 the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. Read it. It says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Notice that title, Son of Man. It's all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's Jesus. In the New Testament, we know now it's Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days, this time of of judgment. God the Father gave his son, the son of man, dominion and power and rule and authority and glory in the kingdom. That all the people, all the nations, all the language should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is never going to be destroyed. And now in the book of Revelation, John, the revelator, he sees Jesus. 
And he has dominion and glory and kingly power and authority over all the people, all the nations. He's going to rule the world. And his kingdom's never going to be destroyed. Remember, at this moment, John is suffering. And what happens? John worships Jesus and Jesus shows up and Jesus reveals his glory. You see, my point is John has this high view of Jesus. He sees his glory. But we at times, we tend to have a low view of Jesus. Be honest, we do. Especially when we suffer the most, we, we, we have this low view of Jesus. At best, we tend to focus maybe on, on his, what he looked like in, on earth. We have this low view of Jesus. Often Christians, they have this, this incomplete view of God. At best, sometimes Christians, they, they see God as this doting grandfather, maybe some cosmic buddy, pow chum, this great Santa Claus in the sky that's just here to bless you. That's what we do. We, we tend to think that God is here to bless us, that he's here to serve us. Or maybe we go to Greek mythology where we think that God's just going to put his finger on us and wrench us out if we get out of line. Or if we don't do that, what we simply do is we question God because we're like, hey, Jesus, I wrote out this script for my life. I handed you my script and you're not following the script. Do you even know what you're doing? We do that because we have a low view of Jesus. But that's not what John did. John has this high view of Jesus. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus clothed in a, in a long robe with this golden sash around his chest, representing how Jesus is our high priest. The hairs on his head were white, white like wool, like, white like snow, representing wisdom and dignity and purity. His eyes were like flames of fire, how he sees it all. He sees it all, and yet he still loves us. At our very lowest, he knows it all, and he still loves us. His voice is like the roar of many waters, booming and powerful. In his mouth comes his two-edged sword. It's symbolizing divine judgment. I want to say, this isn't the meek and mild lamb, that, or the skinny guy that's got a lamb around his neck that we learn in Sunday school, right? This is a very different Jesus. His face is shining like the sun. Hey, step out on a bright day and stare at the sun for a couple minutes. You'll go blind, one reason so many men have a hard time accepting Jesus as Savior because they have an improper view of Jesus. They think of Jesus, about five foot nine, 165 pound, shriveled up guy that hung on a cross. He was grabbed by some evil guys and, and beat up and they killed him. But I want you to know that's not the Jesus that is in heaven right now. That's not the Jesus that is coming back. Compare skinny, shriveled up Jesus to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords description that John gives us here. God said in the Old Testament, no man can look upon me and live. And yet, men and women, we were made to behold the very face of God. We were created to find our ultimate significance and joy and purpose in Jesus Christ. In Psalm 16, it says, in his presence is the fullness of joy. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees this view of God and he came undone. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips from people of unclean lips. In that moment, Isaiah's greatest need was the one thing that absolutely destroy him. You see, we, we cannot see the face of God because of our sin. The secular person says, well, judgment and evil and suffering, they're never going to be resolved. And the more conservative person says, yeah, there's going to be judgment, but then go be good. 
But the gospel says that Jesus took our punishment. He died the death in our place for our sins. And if you place your faith in Christ, you can be forgiven. And you can be in the very presence of this God forever. Look at John's response to the vision he sees. It's found in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, he's probably 90 to 100 years old. He's an old man. He sees Jesus in in all his glory, and he falls down as if he's dead. It's an act of worship. It's an act of surrender and adoration. My point is John's response should be our response. Because Jesus is altogether lovely and wonderful and magnificent. Now we should worship him. Verse 17 again. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last. The living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write this, write therefore the things that you have seen. Those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's my fourth and final point for us this morning. Point number four. Jesus' suffering puts our suffering in perspective. Jesus says, fear not. Literally, stop being afraid. Why? Because the first and last, the alpha and the omega, that's Jesus. The the alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek uh, uh, alphabet. And omega, that's the last. Jesus essentially saying, I'm God. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I want you to know that Jesus' death on the cross is marked by humiliation and pain and agony and separation. So anything that we experience on this life, this road of life, This is suffering, affliction. It's really small in comparison to what Jesus went through. I'm not saying what what we're going through is not a lot, but it's not a lot when you compare it to what Jesus went through for us. And Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. Keys symbolizes authority. Jesus has the power and authority over life and death itself. He is the creator and the sustainer. I want you to know there's two deaths in the Bible. The first one's physical. Physical death is where your soul is separated from your body. Everybody experiences that death. The second is a spiritual death. Separation between your soul and God. I want you to know we are all dead men and women walking because of our sin. And if you die in your sins, you will experience both the first and the second death. You see, the gospel says that we owe God a a, a A debt that we can never repay because of our sins. And Jesus paid the debt. He paid the debt by giving his life and dying the death that we should die. He became the perfect sacrifice. Jesus paid it all to forever remove the debt that we have to God. My question to you is, do you believe this? Have you accepted the free gift of forgiveness of sins through what Jesus' cross has done for you and me in our place? Because in Jesus, our debt to God can be canceled and our sins can be removed and forgiven. Have you believed this? Have you trusted this? The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. 
And I just love that because God doesn't list out a whole bunch of sins and say, if you've done this, you're unforgivable. No. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. There must come a moment of spiritual clarity in your life. You recognize your sinfulness. Now your sin has separated you from God. And repentance is to say, I'm wrong. Turn from your sins and turn to God in faith and he will save you. If you've never called out to Jesus to save you, I'd beg you to do it now. Say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.